let's bow our heads for a time of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much, uh, truly, for the blessings that you give us, uh, so many that we cannot count. And Lord, we even thank you for these little ones that have been born and added to our number in our congregation, and we do pray for your blessing upon them. But we, we pray, Lord, for your blessing upon us as well, as we have the privilege to come and to hear the word of God, to hear God himself speak to us. Oh, Lord. Please give us ears to hear the words that you have to say. We know that at the same time that the word is preached, that Satan will be here to try to snatch away the words that are spoken. But we pray for your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, to give us hearts that are prepared to receive that word. And God, that you would lead us to be doers of the word and not just people who hear it. We thank you, O Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen. As we come to James uh, chapter 4, we come to the topic of of worldliness. And worldliness has always been a challenge for God's people, the church. I mean, we could go way back if you want to think about the Israelites and how God took one man, Abram, and he took his family and he caused that family to grow to become a nation, a whole group of people. Uh, And then God said to that nation, I am your God and you will be my people. And they had a privileged relationship with God, and he blessed them. And Israel followed God, and he worshipped him, but unfortunately, they did not do so with their whole heart. And for you kids that have grown up in the church, you've probably heard of the Israelites. And you probably think, oh, there they go again. You know, they're disobeying the Lord, and they're not doing what God says. But you see, God wanted his people uh, to be different than the nations that lived around them. He desired that they would walk in holiness and obedience, that that the nations around them may see who God is, who his character is, and what it is that he's wanting to do. But the Israelites kept falling into sin and disobeying the Lord. They liked the things of the world, and they were attracted by the, the, the lifestyle and the way that the nations around them taught. And thought, unfortunately. And so you see that Israel, God's people, were tempted to think like the world was, to think in the categories that they thought, to agree with their assessment of the world. That they were tempted to behave like the world and act like the world. Maybe not whole hog, maybe not doing everything that they did, but oftentimes the Israelites were sort of like a people who had one foot in one world and one foot in another. Sometimes they would act like the nations and and act sort of godless, and then other times that they would seek to obey the Lord. So there's very much a double-mindedness or a duplicity in their thinking. They also wanted the things of the world, sometimes even in preference to God himself. And so they would seek to fulfill their desires and their satisfaction with temporary things offered by the world. They wanted to believe like the world, and they wanted their beliefs to be accepted by the world as well. And so sometimes that required that the Israelites would compromise what God says so that the nations around them wouldn't think that they were so strange. Now, I could go through 2,000 years of church history, and I could show you how throughout time the church has struggled with worldliness. But... Fortunately, we don't have the time to do that this morning, to go through that. Besides, I don't think we need to, because as those who are 
who are, if we're really honest, as those who are part of the 21st church of the 21st century, we understand that struggle with worldliness, do we not? Uh, where we might be tempted to be drawn to not listen to the Lord and do the things he says, but instead to give ourselves to the things of the world. Because we are surrounded by a world, a culture, a community. Uh, we're surrounded by peer, peer groups, uh, social networks, status quo, whatever you want to call it. But we're surrounded by all these things that entice us to worldliness. And maybe in some of us, I don't know, maybe many of us, may, I don't know, maybe most of us, you know, it's prevailing for us to struggle with this whole thing of worldliness and wanting to do what the world uh, sort of offers to us. Because the world stands out there almost like in a marketplace where a vendor would stand out and he would have his goods and he would say, hey, look at this. Doesn't this look so good? And we are just constantly being bombarded. And now it's not just televisions or billboards. We have the Internet. And if that's not bad enough, then we take that around with us on our phones or other devices that we might have. And so we're just constantly being bombarded with the thinking and the beliefs and the behavior of the world. And, and like the Israelites, we may not want to buy into that whole hog, per se, but sometimes we find ourselves sort of living that life of duplicity. And so the world sometimes even looks at us and says, you know, the way you guys think in the church is very outdated. It's old-fashioned. And we begin to think that we don't want to be different from the world, much like the Israelites who weren't that salt and light to the nations around them. And so we want to be sort of in step with the world and we find ourselves sort of compromising. We feel that, that pressure, that pull, that attraction from the world around us. But that's not the only problem. You know, that's just the outside situation. On the inside, in our own hearts, we are also being tugged at in the same direction by our own selfish desires, are we not? We're fighting sort of a war on, on two fronts. It's not just that there's this outward war that's waging against our hearts, but there is also a division sometimes in our own hearts is that worldliness resides in us. And so like James has been talking about as he's been addressing the church, you know, we find ourselves sort of giving sometimes preference to rich people as opposed to poor people. We sort of look down on poor people and we want to be like the rich and the famous or we find ourselves having an uncontrolled and critical tongue about others, maybe even fights and quarrels and disputes among us or we're arrogant. You know, just a lot of these things that James has been talking about. You know, Paul talks a lot about the worldliness that comes into the church as well in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, where he talks about the works of the flesh and even the lust and the, 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 um, the, the disputes and all kinds of things that are going on. So how are we to uh, combat such an enemy if we have both an enemy within and an enemy without? Well, today you hear people say, well, it's simple. Just follow your heart. Just do what your heart tells you to do. In my family, we call that Disney theology. That seems to be what Disney says. Just follow your heart. But James tells us that there's a problem with that. He said, your heart is part of your problem. And so he begins to address this whole thing of worldliness. And I want us to look at it a little bit closer this morning. And he talks about the character of worldliness 
And then he's going to talk about the cure of worldliness. But So first of all, he wants us to understand what exactly we mean by worldliness and what is going on there whenever we struggle with that. Well, he starts out in verse 4 and he says, You adulterous people. Now, the Old Testament prophets use this language to describe Israel's unfaithfulness to God. As she went through the ritualistic motions that God required, Israel would offer the burnt sacrifices and everything, but at the same time, living and thinking like the nations around her. You know, Israel was a lot like an adulterous wife who living with her husband and she's acting the part of a wife and seeming to love her husband so much and yet on the side she's sleeping around with other men. That's sort of the kind of picture. As a matter of fact, God told one of his prophets, you know, I want you to show my people what their relationship with me is like. And so God commanded one of his prophets to marry a prostitute to show Israel how unfaithful their, their relationship with him was, and yet how abiding his love was going to be towards them because God continued to tell that prophet to go back and to pursue that woman again and again and again and again, showing God's uh, unfailing love. And so, you know, as we, as we come to this, we see God describing worldliness in these terms. He talks about it in terms of friendship with the world because that's what it is. I mean, when we're friends with someone, we want to spend time with them. We want to do the things that they do and, and enjoy the things that, that they do. Um, but we need to be careful that when we think about friendship with the world, that we don't think of it as it's oftentimes conveyed. It's just sort of a short list of activities, uh, worldly outward activities. And what do I mean by that? Well, have you ever been part of a church that we might call it sort of legalistic, but, you know, you hear church where they say, well, it's wrong to, to drink, it's wrong to dance, it's wrong to dress, you know, certain ways. You know, you're not supposed to cuss. And there's all sort of these uh, outward activities that you're supposed to avoid because that's worldliness. Well, what James is talking about here is much deeper than that. He's not just speaking about the activities or the things that we do. But he's really wanting us to understand our lives in terms of like an onion. Now, there was one of the guys, I won't embarrass him by mentioning his name, but he just did a great job yesterday at the men's study of capturing James's idea of what he's wanting to do here. And in his book, he really wants us to understand ourselves in terms of sort of layers. That on the outward part of who we are, there's these activities, these things that we do. But there's more to us than just the actions that we do. But there's also the feelings and the thoughts that we have as well. And then even more inside of that, at the very core of who we are, is really where our allegiances lie. You know, those things that are important to us, those things that, that motivate us, the spiritual considerations of, of our hearts. You might liken it to the loyalties that we have. And, and I think it's important for us to ask, you know, who do you let rule your heart? You know, I think oftentimes worldliness in the life of a Christian, because it really is not just a list of activities, of things that we do or we don't do, but it's really more the attitude of the heart. It's really more that motivation. But because oftentimes as Christians, we're just looking at the external activities of our lives and not really considering the motives of our hearts, we can foster worldliness and not even know it. 
You know, it's a little bit like undiagnosed cancer. You know, you can have cancer and you can live life just like you're living it now. And, and then one day, all of a sudden, you're not feeling well and you go to the doctor uh, just because you need, feel like you need a little bit of a checkup and the doctor runs some tests and he finds out that actually you have cancer that has spread throughout your body. And it's been attacking your organs for some time, and yet you couldn't tell. Because externally, there's no evidence of that. But internally, in our hearts, that's been going on for a period of time. And, and worldliness is, is much that same way. That it can be in our hearts, and we not even, not, not even know it. But James goes on, and he says, do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. He said, let me explain to you what goes on when you have a heart that's divided with the Lord and with the things of the world. And you're sort of living that double-minded life. He said, really? You might think, well, I'm serving the Lord sometimes and I'm sort of serving myself or I'm serving the world the other times. He goes, no, he goes, actually, that's not what's happening. He said, actually, such a lifestyle is enmity towards God. That word enmity means hatred towards God. Because what we're doing is, is that we're giving ourselves to the world system that wants nothing to do with God, that hates God. And so when we give ourselves to these things, it is hatred towards God. And James wants to use very forceful language because he knows that we have a tendency to sort of explain away the compromise of our own hearts. Do we not? Can't we sort of justify our sins uh, very well? And, you know, we like the things of the world and we might give ourselves to those things, whether that be in our entertainment or in the words that we speak or whatever it might be. And he wants us to see that the seriousness of the infringement that worldliness is against the will of God. And it's almost like that adulterous wife who's sleeping around with other men and yet she justifies in her own mind that she's still a good wife and that she actually is bringing honor to her husband. And you're thinking, really? You know, but sometimes we can so deceive ourselves. And so James wants to put us back on track after showing us that we have wandered away from the heart of the Lord. And then he says in verse 4, after saying that this is friendship with the world, he goes, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That every person is responsible for God, for the path in which they choose. That he wants us to see that worldliness is a choice. It's something that we choose to, to do. It's a deliberate choice. You know, so we can't excuse ourselves and say, well, you know, it's peer pressure. You know, that's why I do these things. Or it was my upbringing. Or it's, it's my environment. You know, if you worked where I work, you know, I, the, the department I work in, man... These guys can cuss like a sailor. Actually, the women can cuss like sailors, you know, and it's just very difficult to be a Christian and to live in that environment. Or, you know, there may be other things that we may explain as well. But often we know that uh, that our hearts are divided even before we sin. Have you ever had an experience where your heart desires or lusts after certain things and you know that that's not something that will honor the Lord and yet... You know that ahead of time, even before you do anything. And, and, uh, and yet you give in to that, even though you know it dishonors the Lord. It's not something that we are oftentimes ignorant of. You know, we need to remember that we become an enemy of God, not because God hates us, but because we hate God and because we love ourselves more. But James, as he 
goes on in this passage. He said, so that may be our heart condition. That may be where you are today. And maybe even you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you want to serve him, but you find yourself living sort of that duplicity. You're sitting here in the pew this morning and you're thinking, you know, if I if people only knew what I was really like during the week, you know, if they if they heard the way that I spoke with other people, if, if they if they saw the things that I viewed on the Internet, if, if, if they saw the way how I was so selfish in the way I spent my money and it was only to bring me pleasure, whatever it might be, you know, you may be sitting here, you may be thinking, oh, God, what do I do? Well, the Lord says, don't lose heart. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 6, he says, but he, that is God, gives us more grace. Now, notice he didn't say God gives us grace. He said God gives us more grace. And what a comfort this is to us when we find ourselves in that kind of tension and that kind of struggle. It tells us that God is tirelessly on the side of those who walk humbly before him because he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He is never less than sufficient that God will give us everything that we need. But James, having pointed out God's sufficiency, then begins to, to point out our responsibility. He shows us what a humble life looks like, someone who humbles himself before the Lord. Even if you're here today and you have a heart that's double-minded and you find yourself being jerked two different directions, know that God's grace is sufficient and that you can walk humbly before him. And he describes what that humble life looks like. He said, first of all, it's a person who makes a decisive decision to take the side of the Lord. It is a person uh, who takes a decisive side of the Lord. In other words, they have given their allegiance to God. Look at verse 7. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The basic cure for worldliness is submission to God. You know, Christians must have no doubt in their minds whose side that they are on, or maybe I should say whose side, you know, that are, you know, that they are in the Lord's side, that God is, is there with them. That even though you've maybe lived sort of that double life, that you can say today, that's enough. That is enough. That today that I'm going to stand in, and uh, trust the Lord. So James is not speaking here so much of a submission in the sense of obedience to this or that command. I mean, that's part of it. But it's really more talking about the allegiance of the heart. But as we take that stand and we say that I'm going to submit myself to the Lord and to his commands and his ways, then that leads into the practice of the presence of God, as we see in verse 8. So there's that a, a deliberate cultivation of fellowship with the Lord. Notice what he says. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So you have the command to draw near to God, but then you also have the promise that God would draw near to you. And I think that we find a tendency in ourselves to want to reverse the order of this. You know, how easy it would be to, to have a daily time with the Lord if when we began our time with the Lord, we had a sense of his presence. You know, but do you ever sit down with your Bible to read it uh, or to, to spend time in prayer? And, and as you do so, it seems like you're walking through mud. It just seems like you don't necessarily feel the presence of the Lord. 
And so sometimes it's very easy to let those things slide. And you think, well, if God would just help me out here, if, if he would just draw near to me first, it would make it easier for me to draw near to him. And so we want the promise to come before the command. But we learned back in verse 6 that God gives us more grace to those who set their paths on the or their feet on the path of obedience. You know, it's interesting that the biblical paradigm or the biblical pattern that we see throughout Scripture is that obedience always comes before promise. I mean, think about the Israelites and they're crossing over into the promised land. And you've got millions of people, okay? They're going across this creek and this creek is at flood stage, okay? So if you step into this, it'd be like, whoop, there you go. And uh, it's that kind of rushing water. And so God commands that the priest with this ark, which is uh, a box that is made of acacia wood and covered with gold so it's heavy. You know, they have this on a pole and God says, step into the river and trust me and then I will provide the way. And so the priests take and they step into the river and we read that what God does is he parts the waters and he provides for his people and they walk across on dry land. Not only that, but we see that in other places as well. Jericho, you think about that. God says, I'm going to give you this city. The city had walls three feet thick. How is an army going to destroy those walls and get into that city and conquer it? And God says, well, this is what I want you to do. I want you to march around the city every day for, seven, for a week. And so what do the Israelites do? They walk around the city every day and then they go back to their camp. And the people in Jericho are like looking at these people going, okay, this is weird. You know, I don't, I don't understand this. And then they come out one day and they go around the city several times. And then the Lord tells them to blow the trumpets. And they blow the trumpets. And what happens to the walls, kids? What happens to the walls? Crash. They come down, don't they? But what's interesting is, is that archaeologists have found that the walls of the city of Jericho did not fall inward like an army had knocked those walls down, but the walls actually fell outward, showing that it was the hand of the Lord that had taken those walls down. Which came first, the promise or the obedience? And every time God calls us to walk in obedience to him and that he will keep his, his promise. So God is faithful to his promise and, and, and he just calls us to step out in faith. So to draw near to the Lord is, is really an expression of that idea of submission to the Lord and of resisting the devil. Because if you draw near to God, you're drawing far away from the devil and the things of the world. Now you might feel like, well, I've got to clean up my life first before I can do that. But that's not what God calls us to. He calls us instead just to draw near to him. And that brings us to our third point as we look at the last part of verse 8. Uh, that This in turn prompts this longing to be like God in, in holiness. Uh, verse 8 says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James calls... These people to repent of their sin and to walk in holiness, both outwardly and inwardly. And as we repent, both of individual sins as in our actions and our attitudes and in our thoughts, um, 
we, we, we do so turning away from those things and walking in single-mindedness to the Lord. Now, as he says here, he's talking to people who are double-minded. And this is the same word he uses back in, in verse 8. Um, but notice who the person is that is to cleanse their hands. Who is it? It's us. He's not calling the Holy Spirit to, to do it. He's calling us to do it. It is the work of the believer. It's a lot like a, a gardener who goes out and he hoes the weeds in his garden. So we are commanded to clean up our conduct in our hearts. Now you may think, wow, Rick, that sounds like work salvation. Like I'm supposed to do my part so that God can save me. But I think this is where if we think back to Philippians chapter 2, it, it helps us a lot. Philippians 2 says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so n now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he goes on and Paul explains something. He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that's what we see here as James is, is talking. You know, as we come before the Lord, we are to draw near to him. We are to repent of our sins. We are to walk in obedience to him. But the only way we can do that is if God's spirit is working in our hearts. And so even as we're sitting here today and we might think of that double mindedness and we think, oh, God, how can I do any of these things? We can't. But God's Holy Spirit will direct and lead us. And, and as we... Uh, move to pursue his likeness to be more like him the more deeply and sorrowful our sinfulness will be felt uh, in our own hearts he says in verse 9 be wretched and mourn and weep let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom like James the, the psalmist speaks of the way of restoration and the joy of the Lord as having a broken and a contrite heart as we read in Psalm 51. The Christian's life is sort of a paradox in, in many ways. You know, when we're weak, then we're strong. When we're a captive of Christ, that's actually when we're the freest. Or when we're humble... That's when God exalts us or when we're repentant, then that's when we have truly the, the condition to experience true joy. True Christian joy and worldliness do not coexist. But as we turn our backs upon the things of this world and we draw near to the Lord, then he will so work in our hearts to give us a heart for him and to love him. And, and we read in verse 10 sort of the consequence of this turning from worldliness. He says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. You see, the, the fruit of submission to God is that he will surely lift up his faithful believing children as God gives grace to the humble, as we saw in verse 6. Augustine uh, says this about this verse. He said, As a tree must strike down roots downwards that it may grow upwards, so everyone who has not his soul fixed deeply in humility it exalts himself to his own ruin. You know, is that not how we are? But as we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will lift us up and he will exalt us. So if you are here this morning... And you are wrestling with that sense of worldliness, which I'm sure probably to some degree we all do to that. 
Know that God is a God who loves you and his grace is more and he calls you to himself to draw near to him, to submit your heart to him, to cleanse your hands, both your, yourself outwardly, but also your heart to him, giving yourself wholeheartedly to him. And as you do, God will lift you up. He will exalt you. He will draw you closer to him because he is faithful. Amen? Please, if you would, let's bow our heads this morning and take a moment as we meditate upon the word that was preached this morning. Father, we thank you so much that we could hear your word. And Lord, we know that these are more than just words, that they are words of hope for those that are caught in bondage. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes uh, much like you would a person who did have cancer. God, that they would see the condition of their heart. Lord, search us, probe us, O oh God, test our ways. And Lord, in any ways that we have given ourselves to the ways of the world and the thoughts and the beliefs and the actions of the world, that you would expose those things in our lives so we could see truly where we have befriended ourselves with the world. Instead, Lord, I pray that we would give ourselves to you. And I pray for the one that's here this morning, especially, Lord, the one that may be struggling so much and who feels so helpless and overwhelmed, um, just maybe feels like, oh, I'm such a hypocrite. You know, if, if, if people here at Kirk of the Plains really knew my heart, they wouldn't accept me. They would probably kick me out of the church. But, Lord, let that person know that there is hope in you and that your grace is sufficient and that they can draw near to you and that you will do a mighty and a great work in their lives. Oh, we thank you, O oh God, that we are never a hopeless people. Lord, that we rejoice. And that's why we come to worship you, Lord, and to lift up your name and exalt you. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.